Hi, this is Jared Roush, as you might recognize my voice. Um, the general manager here at Radio 1190, 1190 AM, 98.9 FM here in Boulder. And I am here with um, Brian Katlos from the Religious Studies Department here at CU Boulder to talk about his book. I want to make sure to get the subtitle in there as well. Um, I don't know where I left it. Um, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> I, I left it out. Don't, don't worry. I, I, got, I got my notes here. Um, it's, I just also want to make, it's kingdom of faith, right? Or kingdom, kingdoms. Kingdoms of faith. Yeah, I, uh, that was the other place. It, <laughs> it's a singular or plural. And then is there a subtitle in there? There is. It's called Kingdoms of Faith, A New History of Islamic Spain. Awesome. And so and that very much um, will lead to our kind of conversation a little further. But um, for those who aren't either familiar with CU's campus or the Religious Studies Department um, or, Brian, uh, your work, um, can you talk a little bit about your work, how you got into kind of studying um, the history of um, religion, specifically Islam, and obviously across over to Jewish studies and Christianity studies, but how did kind of, just looking a little bit at your background, how did you, um, as a fellow historian, I'm always interested to hear what kind of brought that passion and interest to a certain subject area? Sure. So. <coughs> My work really centers on Muslim-Christian-Jewish relations in the Middle Ages, both in the Christian world and the Islamic world. And I guess I got into it, there were kind of two reasons. Uh, when I was uh, an undergraduate at the University of Toronto up in Canada, I did a course on medieval science and magic. And by looking at the way that medieval science and magic worked, it was clear to me that the scientific enterprise in the Middle Ages was really something that was a collaborative effort uh, between Christians, Muslims, and Jews. And a lot of it, in terms of innovation and transmission of technologies and ideas, was going on in, uh, in Spain. And then uh, the second thing that kind of got me into this subject was when I finished my BA, and this would have been, I guess, back in 1992, uh, I decided to take a year off before uh, I went to graduate school, and so I grabbed my backpack and I headed to the Middle East. And I ended up in Syria, in Aleppo, which is sadly now uh, no longer the city that, that I visited. And uh, I found an Arabic teacher in Aleppo and I studied Arabic there. And then I uh, ended up winding my way eventually to uh, uh, Israel, where uh, I studied uh, Hebrew. And what that did, that trip, uh, apart from just being a kind of mind-blowing experience in terms of all of, the, all of the history and all of the people that I encountered was, it got me interested in how uh, uh, members of different ethnic and religious communities uh, uh, negotiate their relationships with each other, how sometimes uh, they seem to get along really well, uh, seamlessly, and engage in all sorts of uh, relationships of uh, friendship and mutual collaboration, and how uh, sometimes very suddenly and quite catastrophically the borders between communities can come up and we have repression and violence. So those are the two things that really got me going, and I ended up really getting more interested in the social, economic, and political history of the way these groups relate to each other, particularly in minority-majority situations, rather than, for example, 
theology or religion itself, although that definitely comes into things. And so um, kind of moving forward in your career, um, you've written um, not on this exact subject, but you've written other books and obviously publications. You're, you're a professor here. That's one of our requirements right. to, 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 continue, to, to continue to, to have employment and, and to move on in our careers. Um, but can you talk just a little bit about especially those um, as we kind of get to Kingdoms of Faith, um, which was released in May, I believe. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your previous work and then how that kind of um, fed into this latest work? Sure. Well, what I started doing was uh, once I got interested in really the social history of uh, uh, minority-majority relations, I ended up uh, doing my research in Spain. And I looked at the Muslim minority living in uh, northern Christian Spain, mostly in the 1300s. And the reason why I did that was that for all sorts of reasons, mostly having to do with, well, luck and circumstance, there is an incredibly rich and abundant archive of medieval material there. And so I spent my PhD research basically reading through these uh, seven, 800-year-old documents, mostly written in Latin, trying to piece together with all the clues a sort of story of this Muslim community uh, living in an area that had been conquered by Christian kings and how they were integrated into the larger society, which was a society that also had a significant Jewish population, and what sorts of things, uh, in what sorts of ways they were able to find stability and a kind of mutually beneficial relationship with the other communities, and in what circumstances there were frictions, and actually very, very, very rarely violence. Uh, what we get is a picture of communities that manage to live together uh, by and large. So that was kind of the basis of my, uh, that sort of launched my academic career. And, and from there, I sort of built out on things. And I started looking more, for example, at Jewish communities, and uh, also, it kind of got me into the whole picture of the Mediterranean. The way that we've you know, traditionally studied medieval history has been very Eurocentric. There are lots of reasons for that. It's not surprising. Our university system grew out of the, the Northern European Enlightenment. And the way that we've approached medieval history has been really largely informed and influenced by 19th century ideas of nationalism and national identity. And what we find is when we go back into the Middle Ages that people just didn't think that way and that those categories are just not valid. And so I've been kind of on, on the forefront of a movement, uh, which is the Mediterranean Studies Movement. And what we do is we are kind of refocusing the history of the larger West. And when I say the West, that is a West that isn't limited to Europe, but it's a West that really is, is the world, the pre-modern world of the Abrahamic faiths. Okay, so it's a West that stretches basically from the Indus River to the Atlantic as a kind of cultural sphere, okay? And if we look at the pre-modern era at the Middle Ages, really the, the locus of uh, the most kind of dynamic innovations and contacts was the Mediterranean. This was an area where Christians, Muslims, and Jews of all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds came into contact and conflict with each other, and what we see is not a region that was divided by a sort of iron curtain between Christianity and Islam, but rather one in which borders were porous and in which there was a lot of overlap and collaboration. Uh, 
So that led me to write a book called Infidel Kings and Unholy Warriors, which kind of pricks the bubble on the idea of the clash of civilizations in the age of crusades. And this is what led me eventually to, while I was approached by a publisher, to write a book on Islamic Spain. And it's something that I, I hadn't thought of writing a book on, but obviously I was very invested in, so that's how the book came about. And um, before we get to the um, details of the book, I do want to ask you, um, at least in your research and experience, how has, um, I would call it maybe a misunderstanding of these relationships, how has it fed, fed into kind of our understanding about these um, relationships and interactions now that um, are, I guess, have those assumptions um, crossed over or transferred to current generations and understandings? Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, particularly in uh, the popular sphere, but even in the academic sphere, the, the sort of the myth, I would call it, of the clash of civilizations and the notion that, uh, you know, for example, uh, Islamic civilization and Western Christian civilization are fundamentally incompatible is a very durable myth. You know, and it, it's interesting because, for example, you can see how it sort of evolves over time. Now, for example, in certain media outlets, you hear a lot about Judeo-Christian civilization as opposed to Islamic civilization. And it's interesting because the idea of Judeo-Christian civilization is really recent. It's only really developed in the last half of the 20th century. And when the term first started being used, it was used in a negative way. Right? And so what happens is that these ideas of the past that aren't necessarily the most appropriate ways of understanding it get kind of co-opted by, by modern political and cultural currents and are used to, to, to justify policies that are happening today. And so, um, and I mean, also kind of in that, in that same vein, like even at my dinner table, there was always kind of an assumption that because I come, my mom's side is Christian, my dad's side is is Muslim, that automatically there is these theological wars at the dinner table, whereas there seems to be, and a lot of us who deal with multiple faiths or deal with um, mixed faith relationships, things like that, understand that in a lot of ways there's more similarities than differences, and not to say in terms of not not to get into kind of the ideology, but just kind of everyday life and and common needs and, and common kind of goals and things like that. And so, um, um, and that kind of is that your also kind of that's my personal experience. But in your research, is that your experience that most people are more concerned with maybe their everyday life, economic issues, survival, things like that, versus kind of these assumed large theological wars that we we think that happen throughout these kind of periods absolutely uh you know people are not uh and this is true today if we talk about for example democrats and republicans or if we go into the the middle ages and we talk about christians muslims and jews individuals are not living breathing caricatures of their ideological system okay ideology or theology is something that you know, plays a certain role in our lives and in our identity, but in very few people is it really an important factor in their day-to-day -day existence. People are trying to get by, they're encountering people, they're making friendships, they're looking for love, they're trying to get ahead in the world, and all of these are activities that don't necessarily define themselves according to one's religious or ideological identity. 
So what you get when you, when you look at this past of Christian, Muslim, and Jewish interaction in medieval Spain or elsewhere is that you get long periods of fundamentally peaceful interaction. And every once in a while, for some reason, tensions start to build or there's some event which pushes things into the ideological sphere or there's economic competition which lines up according to religious faith. And in those instances, every once in a while, you'll have you know, one of these sudden events of violence. And you know, that's part of normal human history and it happens in all communities. The mistake is that when we look at those periodic incidents and we characterize those relations according to what are really kind of, you know, occasionally regular but exceptional interactions, for the most part, people just want to get along. And um, let's let's bring in the book um, and rewind about, I would say about 1,300 years or so, because the year 711 is a year that I, uh, growing up, I've also heard um, as kind of the catalyst, especially when it comes to um, Muslims getting to Europe as, as someone who comes from a European Muslim family, that that year was kind of always um, there. And so can you talk about the significance of that and also some misunderstandings about the, the year and kind of the development of Islam in general? Because obviously you have to go back just about a, s- a little less than a century or so to really kind of get the core of all of, the, all of that kind of happened and, and the development of these relationships. Sure. Well, in the year seven, the year seven eleven was when uh, a fairly small uh, army led by uh, uh, Muslim Arabs crossed over from North Africa uh, to Spain and encountered a a weak uh, Visigothic kingdom. The Visigoths were Christians, and uh, they in basically in one single battle defeated the Visigothic army and moved into the power vacuum that that created and briefly took over almost all of Spain and much of southern France. Once they had established themselves there, you know, and this was not, uh, you know, as some have, uh, have assumed, part of some master plan on the part of the Islamic Caliphate to conquer the world. This was really uh, the consequence of sort of luck and circumstance. Uh, the Muslim Arabs had conquered North Africa uh, over the course of about 50 years, and they were doing quite well, and so they just kind of continued. And they were kind of led up into Europe by the prospect of plunder and booty. Uh, They could sack churches and take gold, and they could rationalize it on terms of that these people were were non-Muslims, and so they had a, a, you know, um, it was morally permissible to do so. And so once they had kind of established themselves in uh, Spain and southern France, they started raiding further north. There was a famous battle where a Frankish general named Charles Martel defeated a Muslim army. It was the first defeat the Muslims had suffered. And after that point, they kind of, uh, the Muslims pulled back basically to the borders of Spain. Now, it's funny what happened with that incident. That was uh, the Battle of Tours or the Battle of Poitiers. And in the 19th century, even earlier in the 18th century with Edward Gibbon, European historians conflated that into this key episode in the clash of civilizations and uh, Edward Gibbons who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire for example has this famous line which I'll paraphrase and he said you know had it not been for Charles Martel 
what would have stopped the Muslim Arabs from sailing up the Thames and conquering England? And if that had happened, you know, uh, Cambridge and Oxford would now, you know, be places where you would hear the sound of the muezzin and where, you know, circumcised students would be learning the Quran. <laughs> and, you know, this is a really powerful image, but it's just absolutely completely wrong because for example when we look at the Muslim conquest of Spain in 711 in fact what we're not looking at is an encounter between Islam and Christianity what we're looking at is a complex process of conquest in which many members of the Visigothic elite actually collaborated with the Arab Muslims and helped them establish uh, their rule over Spain basically because they had domestic political disputes with the people who were in power at the time. And um, can you, um, especially since I guess in my, um, especially when I was going to um, um, school at the mosque, and we, we learned, um, especially this period, um, and it was one of those kind of wake-up calls for me going to um, more, I guess, Western history um, in school and in college, but um, we, we were always taught that this was a significant time for um, kind of, to use a Western word, enlightened thinkers, that you have all these poets and all these kind of ar artists that in a lot of ways have been lost in history during this period. Um, can you talk about just that kind of the development of this both um, cultural and creative kind of um, um, location, while also talking about, I guess, the, the processes that have led to us losing kind of our knowledge and how you, uh, the work you did, because we think that when we think archival research, it's going into a database and getting the right search term, but um, a lot of us know, especially when you're dealing with kind of pre-media history, it, it's going into physical archives and finding this information. Can you talk about, again, that, that the process of finding that information and then what it meant to kind of reveal, um, and, and other have done it, but you do it in, in, in very great detail, about kind of the, this, this um, growth and this um, enlightenment period that, that a lot of, I guess, those familiar with non-Western history uh, recognize. Wow, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best to keep it brief. <laughs> okay, so yeah, you know, one of the things that Islamic Spain is uh, famous for uh, on, on a popular level, as well as, you know, the notions of, you know, holy war and reconquest and stuff like that, is that uh, uh, Muslims built this uh, cosmopolitan, diverse, uh, artistically and intellectually dynamic culture centered in Islamic Spain around the year, uh, when it really starts happening is from around the year 900 to 1000. That's when it really peaks. And the way that that happened was, you know, there were all sorts of different factors kind of uh, contributed to that happening. One was that there was a process of political consolidation. Around the year 900, uh, the Arab family that had been ruling over Spain, or Al-Andalus as the Muslims called it, finally managed to uh, consolidate their power over Islamic Spain. Before that, they had been fighting a series of rebellions, mostly of, of their own people, but also attacks from Christian neighbors and stuff like that. Well, they, they managed to consolidate their whole lot on Islamic Spain and, uh, just after 900. And not only that, but they expanded into North Africa. Uh, 
Now that was really important because North Africa was, uh, so Morocco, uh, modern Morocco and Algeria were at the northern end of these caravan routes that went deep down into, into Central Africa. What did we have in Central Africa? Gold. Gold in absolute abundance. And so Arab traders were able to follow these trade routes down to Central Africa and trade you know, commodities that were very cheap in the Mediterranean, commodities like salt, basically on a pound-for-pound basis for gold. They would bring that gold back up into the Mediterranean, and that gold is what fueled the success of this new caliphate that had been established in Cordoba in Islamic Spain. So what we had was a powerful, secure, wealthy kingdom, okay? And a kingdom that was inhabited not only by Muslims, but also by a significant Jewish and Christian minority, right? Now, in terms of politics in that kingdom, the rulers did not see the Christians and Jews as a political threat. Christians and Jews, under uh, Islamic law in the Middle Ages, were considered dhimmis. They were kind of second-class citizens, legitimate but second-class citizens within Islamic society. So they didn't have a lot of independent political power. Therefore, they were not threatening. Therefore, the rulers were, didn't feel any reluctance to sort of empower them and allow them to participate in society. And that contributed to an atmosphere of cultural exchange and dynamism, which helped produce a lot of these uh, you know, works of poetry, literature, and science. It also coincided with a collapse, a political collapse that took place in the Islamic East, in the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad. And all of a sudden, lots of refugees, mostly scholars and religious people and people of influence and wealth, came from Baghdad to Cordoba. And so it was kind of a, a, a perfect storm for creating uh, a culturally dynamic open society. I like to compare the Caliphate of Cordoba kind of to the U.S. in the 50s and 60s, when, it w- when the U.S. viewed itself as a sort of confidently viewed itself as, a, as an unparalleled powerhouse that was embracing the world, that was open to anyone, that was open to any ideas. And it was this openness and confidence that led to uh, the tremendous cultural elan of the United States, particularly in the 60s and 70s. And the Caliphate of Cordoba was something like that. The lesson is, of course, as much as in Islamic Spain as in today, right, that domestic political problems can cause those walls to come up, right? And what the consequences of, uh, of that can be is that you lose a lot of that dynamism and you lose a lot of that sophistication when you close the doors and you attempt to clamp down on people. And um, just um, looking at kind of your research, um, because again, you're going back um, uh, 1,300 years plus to f- uh, uh, moving f- and then moving forward to find this. What was the archival and what was kind of the research process in finding this, especially kind of um, in a place where s- s- not, not I don't want to say place, but kind of an environment. That's a better word for it, where some of this has either been 
not forgotten, but kind of overshadowed by some Western history and philosophers and, and that kind of approach from, oh, we, we all came from the Greeks and we, we all learn like the Greeks and we continue kind of that, that um, structure. But how, how did you find, really kind of getting down to it, how did you find this information? Well, um, in terms of the history of, of Islamic Spain, uh, there's a lot out there. Uh, people have been doing uh, the grunt work for uh, for a century now, uh, unearthing uh, uh, Arabic texts, histories, chronicles, uh, uh, poetry, literature, uh, editing these works, uh, uh, translating them, uh, analyzing them. And particularly, I would say, in the last 20 years, there has been a tremendous amount of work particularly done by Spanish scholars, which has absolutely, I think, uh, changed our appreciation for uh, how Islamic Spain functioned as a society and a culture and what its role was in European uh, history. And really, I think, you know, as for myself in this book, Kingdoms of Faith, I, I think in, in many ways, you know, the, the biggest thing that this book does is not so much anything that I've done, but I take the work of these Spanish, uh, amazing Spanish scholars uh, from the last 25 years and bring it together in a way that uh, I don't think anyone has yet done in Spain and certainly not in the English language. You know, <coughs> there's a lot of English language historiography done about Islamic Spain, but in the last 30 or 40 years, it kind of got bogged down into a sort of predictable sort of template. Everyone that writes a history of Islamic Spain kind of covers the same episodes and talks about the same forces. And so I decided to do it in a little bit of a different way. And that different way, I think, was that instead of starting from the, from the, uh, from the presumption that we're looking at Christians, Muslims, and Jews interacting with each other as Christians, Muslims, and Jews, I tried to get under that and look at the people. And that led to a perspective which, which doesn't accentuate the divisions or the ideology and which really brings out how people got along and collaborated often in spite of those divisions. And on the other hand, how sometimes they use those divisions to beat each other up. I mean, you know, this is, history is nasty. It's, it's full of violence, always. And as, as we've talked about, there's never, in history books and kind of histories in general, we like to have kind of milestones or like uh, or kind of checkpoints or mileposts in terms of, oh, this period ends here and he and this um, starts here. But um, there's a fairly um, and it's a year that all of us as school children are very familiar with um, for different reasons. But can you talk about um, especially kind of how um, what cause, I would say, cause the Muslim rule to kind of end or kind of be reduced. And, and again, it's always interesting to kind of see different events and histories from different angles and how it affected different people. But can you talk a little bit about? Sure. I think the year you're talking about is probably 1492, yeah. right? Yeah. Which, of course, is not only the year that uh, Columbus set out to, quote unquote, discover America. <laughs> or get lost. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. One or the other. But also the year in which uh, uh, Fernando and, and Isabel, the, the Catholic monarchs of, uh, of Spain, actually it was two kingdoms, Castile and Aragon, 
conquered the last independent Muslim kingdom in Spain, which was the Kingdom of Granada. And anyone who's read their Washington Irving is familiar with the scene. The city is handed over, and, uh, you know, the, the king, who is this sort of blubbering fool, uh, you know, slinks off into exile. And with that, the Christian reconquest of Spain has ended, and European unity is restored, etc. And it's true, I very deliberately in the book did not make 1492 a turning point. And the reason for that, well, there are a couple reasons for that, but one is that, you know, in some ways, the conquest of Granada was almost incidental. And there's a couple of reasons why I say that. First of all, when uh, the Catholic kings conquered uh, Granada, they did not, first of all, they did not expel the last king. His name was Abu Abdullah. He's usually called Boabdil in the Christian Chronicles. They did not expel him or send him off to North Africa. Actually, they offered him a kind of smaller kingdom just south of Granada, which he could continue to rule as king, sort of under their power as a puppet. And he essentially, he gave that a try briefly and then decided he didn't want to do that and instead took his money and left for North Africa. The other reason is, is that there's a popular conception that the Christian conquest of uh, Islamic Spain was a unified phenomenon, which it certainly was not, all through the Middle Ages, there were uh, various different Christian kingdoms in Spain, and they were all trying to conquer Islamic territory, but they were all also trying to conquer each other. So this idea of a sort of unified Christendom versus a unified Islam actually occurred very rarely. There were a few wars when, the kind of s when it shook out that way, but normally, if we look at the wars of the so-called Reconquista or Reconquest, what we see consistently is Christians and Muslims on one side fighting against Christians and Muslims on the other side. Okay, so this is another reason why that 1492 date is, is sort of not as significant as it might seem. Yeah. But the final reason is that the reconquest of Spain did not imply the purging of Islamic Spain. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Ever since the 12th century, as Christian kings began to take over regions that had been ruled by Muslim princes, what they were interested in doing was kicking out the Muslim princes. They wanted the ordinary Muslims to stay there. Why? Because they needed to keep these areas economically viable. If you conquer a country and, you, and it, it sinks into economic depression, it becomes a liability. I think we've learned that in some of our adventures in the Middle East, right? You need to have a place that you conquered remain active and viable economically. And so Christian rulers really bent over backwards to accommodate Muslims and to induce them to stay on as their subjects, and many of them did, right? And so what we have is in 1492, not the ending of Islam in Spain, but we still have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Muslims living in Christian Spain under Christian rule. The end of Islamic Spain really doesn't come until 1614. In the, in the 1500s, for a number of political reasons, the Christian rulers of Spain, who are now the Habsburg family from Northern Europe, ended up obliging the Muslims of their dominion to convert to Christianity. Obviously, many of them converted falsely or you know, merely because they were afraid of the, the consequences, which would be death if they didn't. Some converted genuinely to Christianity. But there was this kind of 
population that occupied a middle ground, we call them Moriscos, who were not necessarily either Christian or Muslim. And finally, in 1609, the Habsburgs decided, again, basically for political reasons, to get rid of them. And they expelled 300,000 Muslims from Spain between 1609 and 1614. Well, actually, they didn't expel 300,000 Muslims. They expelled 300,000 Christians because all of these people were technically Christians and had been for three generations. Now, this is quite extraordinary because if we look at, for example, the other great diaspora that we associate with, uh, with uh, medieval Spain and with 1492, it's the expulsion of the Jews. How many Jews were expelled from Spain? Somewhere between 15,000 and 25,000. Moreover, the Jews who were expelled from Spain in 1492 were given the option of converting to Christianity and staying or leaving. The situation in 1609 was very different. As I said, these people had been Christian for three generations, at least in name. Many of them were secretly Muslims. And so the idea that you could rationalize expelling Christian people to Muslim countries after three generations is quite significant. And what it points to is a new conception of community which is taking root in Europe at this time, which is the idea of race, which previously just had not been a concept that people used as a sort of primary mode of identifying themselves or others. And um, we are coming up on time here, and admittedly, I could keep talking about this and listening to you, because, I mean, again, um, personally, obviously, I have a connection, but um, anytime I just, I, I love kind of dispelling myths and really getting kind of to the actual facts. And for those interested in hearing more, I'm sure our audience wants to hear more about this. Um, you're speaking at the Jaipur Literature Festival here in Boulder, correct? That's right. Uh, I've got a session. I'll be uh, uh, in conversation with uh, my colleague from religious studies, uh, Aun Ali, and that'll be at 515 at the Boulder Public Library as part of the Jaipur Literary Festival Boulder. Uh, and it's free and open to the public, so if you're interested, it would be great to see you there. Yeah, and we'll post the schedule and information about the festival and, and Brian's speaking engagement on all our social media. And so I want to thank you so much for coming in. Um, this was, again, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, reading the book more in detail um, as a professor myself, um, getting... Getting really a deep read into 500 pages or so is, is not always easy, but um, I think I'll have a, have a fun project for the weekend. And, and so I, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you informing the audience about what you do um, and just the, the really interesting and wonderful research you do. Well, thanks a lot, Jared. It's been a pleasure uh, to be here and, and, and to speak with you and the audience. So again, uh, thanking um, Brian Catlos for coming in. Um, his books, Kingdoms of Faith, um, a know, new history of Islamic Spain. Thank you. I know. I was going to say a history of Islamic Spain. I'm like, <laughs> no, I know it's a new one. It's a yeah, new one. Yeah, I know exactly. Not I the knew old one. an adjective in there. <laughs> um, but um, and that's um, available on Amazon and kind of all the outlets that exactly you, you, would, get, you would get a book. Um, and so soon out in Chinese, Korean, German, and Spanish. So if you don't want to read it in English, you can wait another year. Oh, that's fantastic. And so. Um, <laughs> Um, thank you again for being on. And so we'll get back to the music here on Radio 1190, 1190 AM, 98.9 FM here in Boulder.